Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. So it's just the two of us for another mini episode, although what we found out when it's just the two of us is it's not mini at all. We may <laughs> to talk a lot still. This time, though, John picked a story. So, John, why don't you tell us what you picked? I picked a story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. Great. Do you want to read a section for us? Joyous. How is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omelas? They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. All smiles have become archaic. Given a description such as this, one tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this, one tends to look next for the king, mounted on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter borne by great-muscled slaves. But there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect that they were singularly few. As they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man, nor make any celebration of joy. How can I tell you about the people of Omalas? They were not naive and happy children, though their children were, in fact, happy. They were mature, intelligent, passionate adults whose lives were not wretched. Oh, miracle! But I wish I could describe it better. I wish I could convince you. Omalas sounds, in my words, like a city in a fairy tale long ago and far away, once upon a time. Perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bids, assuming it will rise to the occasion. For certainly I cannot suit you all. For instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Omalas are happy people. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary, what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here, floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold, or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. Very good. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about why you picked this one? I, I wanted to pick an Ursula K. Le Guin story, and this is a uh, very famous one of hers. I read it a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. Um, and I also thought it was interesting, and it's not tradi a traditional story, um, you know, with like a character who's trying to do something. Um, so I thought it'd be um, interesting to talk about it in those terms. This was another one of those ones where I had to kind of read some of the criticism about it or analysis of it, just to make sure that I was kind of on the right track. And that was one of the interesting takeaways in a lot of the stuff that I read, which was that, like you said, it's not a traditional story. There's no arc. It's more of a, here's a situation. 
here's a world, I'm going to build it for you and then kind of walk away from it before anything really happens. Yeah. Which led me to my grand revelation that it's basically an allegory or like a fable. You know, these are stories where maybe something does or doesn't directly happen, but it's not about the plot. It's more about what you as the reader hopefully takes away from it. Yeah, it's it, it goes for, I mean, it, it goes for a feeling. If good short stories try to get you to feel something, then this definitely does that. Right, right, right. I guess I'm not trying to simplify it when I call it a fable or an allegory. It's more like I'm, it's almost as if you are supposed to get a lesson. It has kind of a direct intention that way. I feel like some short stories can do what you say and produce a feeling, but also not be super consequential. And this one, I think, kind of seeks to be something that you think about afterwards to make the reader a little more interesting perspective. Yeah, it's definitely setting up something you're going to think about for a long time or or kind of a what was that all about <laughs> by the yeah. time you get to the end of it? Even if you're just trying to make sense of it or, or like in your situation, it does seem as if you've thought about this over the long term, either because of how what it does well or because of the impact it had on you when you read it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's definitely one that, that lingered with me for a while. And I, I read it a long time ago and I never read it again, but I could, you know, it's one of those stories that you can remember all the important details pretty easily. You know, you know, revisiting isn't revelatory and like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it just is what it is. But, but that's a good point, too. It, well, I would almost argue a story like this, I would remember, too, not because the details aren't important, but because when I read it the first time, it had such an impact that it stuck with me. That's why I think I struggle sometimes, even on this podcast, to recall titles and authors <laughs> of stories that we've read. Like, the plot is usually, like, good enough, but, like, the details aren't. And I think you're right. In a story like this, I might remember, like, Omelas, or however you say that, but I'll definitely remember remember the takeaway at the end here which is that there's a kid starving in basically a jail cell and the whole community just turns a blind eye and it was terrible <laughs> well i thought that this one almost felt like the kind of stories that uh that you like a lot you know we talked about these before where it doesn't quite it's not always in scene it's a lot of retrospect it's a lot of um kind of building up to something so it seemed like kind of a different form for that same idea that some of the stories you've brought to to the podcast and enjoy in general yeah i would agree with that i don't write stuff that could be considered sci-fi really but i think sometimes it's easier to get a certain reader or audience to stomach a message like this if it's packaged in a way that seems more fantastical like if she had presented us a story that said i'd like to make you confront you know a moral conundrum i've realized among our species most people would be like that's all right i don't feel like going there <laughs> and instead she's like let me tell you about these weird people and then she does this twist which let me think that's what I was flipping to when you were talking was the point at which she takes the story on its actual intended course she spends like the first half of the story it's only like four pages but not double spaced on my pdf so it's a decent size I think it's like I think I looked up the word count I forget now anyway pretty deep into the story is when she tells you the actual story about this kid in a basement yeah yeah it's like it's like on the second page I think 
think, or the uh, the third page, I think, in a basement under one of the of the beautiful public buildings of Omalas, or perhaps in a cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. She goes on and on to describe this, and that's when you kind of sit up in your seat and you say, "Oh, here it is." Yeah, this is the conflict, right? Which okay, so th- that was the other thing I was reading. I was thinking about when I read this is I hate happy stories, and this is all that was at first for the first. <laughs> that's right. She's describing the utopia where there's no problems and everyone's happy and kind of defending why it is that could be so without this kind of direct comparison of daily struggle, right? Like, how can you be happy? But also, how can I convince you that you can be happy and not stupid? How You can be happy and but not simple minded or something, you know, like you, you aren't ignoring something you aren't being happy at the expense of something else and i'm like yeah you can't be (laughs) and and i was worried that it was going to be four pages of that you really don't know where it's going until that third page where she says that this community has made a deal with the devil basically that they can be happy as long as this one child has to bear the brunt of all the horrible things that would otherwise befall all of them and the whole community knows that this child exists they go and visit them the kid every once in a while mostly like a one-time thing when they're younger to kind of see it for themselves and then they make a decision for a whole variety of reasons about why they'll let this continue and then obviously at the end there's people that don't yeah sorry that just proves my point you can't be happy there's no such thing as a happy story here's a happy story for two pages and then she does you know the reverse she's like they're happy but it is at the expense of someone else they are turning a blind eye they've decided to choose happiness even though there's terrible things going on in their own community and they've collectively decided to ignore this problem or they've rationalized why it has to exist for the greater good. So it's not a happy story. No, yeah, definitely not. And I thought, I think it's interesting in that respect, whether we want a happy story or think we want a happy story, the whole thing's set up as a narrator kind of talking to us. And right before she introduces the child in the jail cell, the narrator asks us, do you believe? In other words, do you believe in this city? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. And then it launches into the story about the kid, or launches into the description of the kid in the cell and how horrifying its life is. And then that seems to be, after all that, it's like, now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? And then there, there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. And then it ends with the other thing. But it's interesting that that's the detail that makes it more believable. That it's it's not all happiness. There's horror underlying it all. Yeah, I think it does make it. The word cheese is like you said is credible. I yeah, I have an easier time believing that people are choosing happiness versus born with it. We're <laughs> <laughs> choosing it in spite of something. Yeah, that's interesting phrasing. Yeah, this goes my whole philosophy on life, which is that the only way to appreciate the highs are to have experienced the lows. And it's almost as if you can't be this happy having these festivals unless you know how truly sad you could be. Otherwise, this would be just this life on like this even keel, like this happy medium, and you wouldn't know the extremes. It's like only by comparison that you feel joy. Well, yeah, the story definitely sets that up. All right. 
I mentioned that it's told by a narrator. I thought it was really interesting how, um, you know, at the the beginning of the story, it's with a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring. The festival of summer came to the city. And we don't get a sense of a narrator in there. Later in that paragraph, they flared, talking about horses, they flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They're vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Almost suggests that the speaker might be a member of the city right? That's being described. But then later on, even it says, but we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. Like that's kind of undefined as um, who might be the we, it could be people of the city. But then it goes on to say, there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. There were no barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society. All of a sudden we're confronted with this narrator is not somebody from the city is just telling us about it. I do not know the rules of their city, the rules and laws of their city, but I suspect there are singularly few. And then there's a, you know, the eye continues to return. How can I tell you about the people of Omalas? It suddenly becomes a direct address, right? The narrator is talking to us and referring to us as you. And um, there's kind of a switch from the I, we to an I, you speech. Right. And then there's a certain point... A little bit after where I stopped reading, it says, I fear that Omalas so far strikes some of you as goody-goody. Now, all of a sudden, it's as if the narrator's talking to a group of us, and the narrator's identifying that some of that group might interpret what is being said in a certain way. Now, it could be just, you know, author, the relationship between the author and the reader, or narrator and group of listeners. There's a lot, lot of different ways to imagine that um, that scenario, but I thought it was a really interesting way to present this. And it leads into, obviously, the other stuff I mentioned earlier was like, do you believe? Do you accept the festival? It's like someone is exhorting us and trying to convince us of this as being a real place. I think it works too, though, for the story's ultimate goal, which is I think to get you to think very deeply about something. And a lot of times a direct address is attention grabbing that way, versus stories where it doesn't feel that the narrator's talking to you so maybe you have to do a little more thinking because of the way the story's been told it's it's not necessarily going to directly present you a question unless there's something clever done between characters you know where you apply the question to yourself but this is like a very direct address yes it's like consider this and if you're reading and paying attention you're listening to that directed yeah, I wonder, I can't think of any that might be told in that way that is more scene-driven, you know, traditional narrative style of action and activity and characters moving through and doing things. Like, let me tell you what, you know, my character is doing now and see if you, what you think of them. I mean, it probably are. I'm just not thinking of them now. But it is, it's an interesting, like, narrative point of view. What else would you like to point out about this one, though? I mean, I said that there were no scenes in it. No, I mean, no, it was not traditional, but there are there are scenes, right? It's it's the first, uh, what is it? Um, the Festival of Summer is coming to the city. And a lot of what's being described is along the lines of how that's, that festival is going on. And then on the third page, it suddenly kind of enters into a scene. Most of the processions have reached the green fields by now. A marvelous smell of cooking goes forth from the red and blue tents of the provisioners. The face Faces of small children are amiably sticky, and the benign gray beard of a man, a couple of crumbs of rich pastry are entangled. Just things are happening all of a sudden. Like it was all a kind of a description of this city and it's like, how can I convince you this city is real? How can I convince you this? I mean, what details will convince you? And then we get actual actions within a scene, which in a lot of ways feel more convincing, you know, than mere abstract descriptions of, of something. 
So I don't know. I thought that was interesting, just sliding into that scene. Yeah, there are scenes. I don't know. I think sometimes folks in our workshop get confused when we talk about that because when we say in scene, it doesn't have to be a continuous scene that then unfolds chronologically. Yeah. And it doesn't have to happen throughout. It can happen once and still technically be what we call in scene. So it, yeah, it absolutely does that. Mm-hmm. Sounds like I'm explaining that to you, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. He gets it. This is for the, the listener. It's for the layman. Yeah. Well, what would your takeaway be from this one then? Well, another thing that I noticed that would lead to my takeaway is that, so uh, this is a lot of description. It's a lot of, um, even though it does go into that scene, the scene doesn't really go anywhere. There isn't a character trying to get something. So there's no real sense of scenic progress of like, okay, we're going to follow a character through the city or something like that. Or, you know, a a story where a, a character has to confront some deep, something about himself or herself and then overcome that. And then you get a sense of progress from that. What this does is it's describing the city, but as the description goes on, it moves to different aspects of that description. And it feels like a deepening of our understanding of the city. It sharpens our understanding. And I think that that's where we get a sense of progress from, which is really um, an interesting, because I I would say this does pull you through. It doesn't, it doesn't like linger in in what, like the first, like you said, three pages are all kind of happiness and light, but it doesn't stall out. It doesn't feel like the, to me it stalls out. I think each paragraph kind of touches on a new idea and that's how we get progress. So that, that leads to my takeaway is even when you're not doing scenes, even when you're not doing a traditional story where you have you know character doing things very specifically, you can still get that sense of progress by kind of moving from idea to idea or kind of like an argumentative progress rather than a dramatic progress, if that makes sense. Yeah, this reminds me of something that I said once I felt really smart on the podcast again not going to remember the story but I said something about like circling your point I'm not even going to be able to articulate the way I did them but to your point that's what it feels like this is doing when it sort of dives deeper you think you're going to like cover the same ground again but she each time introduces a new twist or not twist but she goes a little deeper she explains a little more and it feels like it's solidifying the world it's making it realer and more real and more real and and like you said it's effective too in types of writing that are trying to argue a point or trying to convince you of something or really get a theme across Uh, a lot of times you're just circling the point over and over and over it's almost like if you think about circling too when I say circling I'm picturing something like like a pencil with a string around it and eventually the string is wrapped completely around the pencil like there's progress being made when you're circling it's not this pointless pacing it's more you're getting something accomplished slowly and you might not even realize it. Like that's what that feels like, right? Yeah, I think you're right. That pencil metaphor, visual imagery is really good. That's there's um when I started teaching composition, we had to take courses about what it meant to teach composition. One of the things that was mentioned is that, you know, in the United States, we teach a very thesis driven Western style of writing for academic writing and in, in universities. And it's very, you know, thesis statement, explain the thesis statement, conclude your thesis. But what was pointed out was that in other cultures, cultures, they write very differently. And, and in a few of them, that circling idea is kind of the preferred way of doing things where you start on the outside of something, you just gradually work inward until you hit the point. And it's not this like linear thesis driven style. I think 
when you said that this is a story that I like the style where it's kind of sweeping and it's synthesizing kind of like a point that this author knows already the approach then of circling something and starting like you said on the outside to finally reach that inner core truth of it it feels to me like a more natural kind of way to stomach that point versus to be told in what you're describing as like the American style of writing that this is the point and now listen to me spoon it out yeah feels like you can by the end realize hey they played a little trick on me i had a takeaway and and i enjoyed it yeah because the other thing is i can look at this as just developing a thesis without that thesis being stated it could be looked at as just kind of a linear progression i could make an argument for that too where you just start here you move to you start at a you move to b you move to c you move to d but i think a more comprehensive picture is in that circling thing because you're not merely moving from one thing to another you're kind of moving around something yeah i think it's important too to point out that this author is doing something very difficult and it takes a lot of skill to kind of wrap around a point like this without covering the same ground kind of boring us with the same revelations or the same verbiage it's not beating a dead horse it's very strategically getting us to think about the same things over and over but with a new wrinkle until it's really solidified you know it's almost like practicing something over and over until you can repeat it to someone and then by the end it's it feels like your revelation yeah because you've come to it that way. One thing that I think helps that happen in this story is the way that she writes these things like in this paragraph. One thing I I know there's none of in Omalas's guilt. What, What else should there be? I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint insistent sweetness of Druze may perfume the ways of the city. And then she goes and talks about this drug that's in the city, possibly, because at the end of that paragraph, she says, she she talks about the drug and then she talks about the, the citizens having a boundless and generous contentment in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere and the splendor of the world's summer. There's just this really contented, happy people. And then she says, I really don't think many of them need to take Drew's. So it's kind of, it introduces the idea of these people are are such that they could have this drug if they wanted. And that's where you arrive at for that idea is like, okay, these people are such that they want, they could have this drug. Then she explores the idea of what the drug is and what it could do for them. And then she reveals that actually they, they're, they're such that they probably don't need the drug. And at the end says, I really don't think they need to take Drew's after all. And you, you kind of explore that idea and then come out of it with, with a different uh, take on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like a bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I, I f- feel like it's a little whirlpool eddy within that that spirograph of exploration. You know, like let's let's spin around over here for a little while, then we come out of it with a new appreciation. Right. She's almost anticipating maybe a reader's, you know, what they're wondering about. Well, these people must need drugs. And she's like, All right, sure, let's look at that and I'll dispel it for you. Yeah, exactly right. Also, it reminded me to reading this, well, kind of what we're talking about where uh we're circling a point was some of the feedback that you gave me for the essay that I shared during our last workshop, which was like that in some of my paragraphs, I had like covered the same ground. And you were telling me like, you know what those places are probably and you can like easily cut them. And I did, I totally knew. But also I had like already done one round of that. And it's so hard because a lot of this has to do with hoping that your reader gets what you're hammering into them. And then when you're building a world like this, you have that added complexity of I hope that they get this symbol or example. Yeah, 
uh, or like, please feel sad, reader. And if, if you didn't feel sad yet, let me make you feel sad again. Yeah. <laughs> Have you felt sad yet? Let me do it again. Right. And if you do it inexpertly, I think even the worst reader will pick up on this in some fashion. Either they'll get bored or they'll think that they are rereading something. You know, they can feel it even if they can't articulate what it is they're bothered by. I think she's doing a good job that way. Well, good job. Good job. Did you do your takeaway yet? My takeaway, I think part of the other reason why this might remind you of some of the stuff I do is because it seems as if Ursula wanted to convey a point. And so she built a world around that point to convey it. It was almost as if the Amellas are just a vehicle for her. She's like, I want to explore the concept of whatever it was. Maybe she's exploring the concept of happiness versus sadness or cultures that turn a blind eye to something so that they can feel a certain way whatever commentary maybe she wanted to explore it seems as if she built the world just to explore it and I feel like as a writer some of my stronger work is usually the result of that same process where I've decided I want to convey a feeling or a theme or an idea or something that I'm thinking about and then I build a story around it versus when I try to come up with a plot and then try to work backwards almost and try to come up with something that even I'm not sure of and And for me, especially short stories are less about plot and more about feeling. So when you're inserting a feeling into a plot just because you like the plot, it feels like a square peg in a round hole a lot of times. And that's like my latest story is why I missed that submission deadline Sunday was because I was trying to do that and it just wasn't going to work. So I keep notes on plot ideas, but also I keep notes on like moral conundrums I'm going through. And then those I feel like I said, are are the ones that I can usually come back to and invent a plot around or the plot's pretty apparent based on the conundrum, but those still tend to be my strongest stories. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like the most recent story that I turned in for the workshop, the idea for that, it was just a standard, you know, a couple of characters are talking, they have interactions. It's totally character driven, scene driven. You know, there's a beginning, there's an end. The characters have movement between the beginning and the end. There's no flashbacks or anything like that. But the idea for that story wasn't, I have this idea for a character. It was, I was reading, I looked up an an author and I was reading about his writing and the, the description of his writing was that he liked to write about tragedies. And I thought, I want to write a tragedy. I want to write something where the characters ought to have one ending, but they get a different ending. And that's the feeling I wanted to achieve in that story. And that, that was the idea for that story. And then I thought of that story and all the pieces kind of fell out from that. So I don't know what my point is with all that, but I think it's interesting that you can do both of those. You can start with that same idea and go in those different ways, telling a traditional story or telling this kind of circular, the circular thing that we've been talking about. Yeah, right, right, right. I would say too that the more abstract one of my concepts is, the easier it is to kind of circle the point versus shoehorn it into a plot and have it come out the same way. Unless you're going to do something like really Really clever where the characters are circling the point as well yeah that's the difficulty right yeah all right thanks guys if you enjoyed this episode consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website napleswritersworkshop.com and for daily writing tips industry news and great short fiction join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash naples writers workshop